So like Dan said, my name is Andrew Skibby, and I lead the students here. Um, taking a little summer break right now, but I've just had the, it's been a pleasure and a privilege for me uh, to get to hang out and have fun and teach the 6th through 12th graders that we have here. Um, so I'm really excited, glad my mom and dad are here with us today. Um, excuse me, got a little allergy thing going on, uh, but I'm really thankful to live up here in, um, <clears throat> in the north, because the, the allergies aren't quite as bad. I, I lived in the south in Kentucky for a little while, and I had a blue car, and the yellow pollen in the spring turned it green. Um, so the allergies down there are just, just terrible. So uh, every spring I can just be thankful that even though I have them, they're not nearly as bad as they were down there. Um, another reason I'm thankful to live uh, in the north, up here near Chicago, is because I love history. And I love the ancient history. Like, the older it is, the better. I just like to, to think about the past and things that have happened and where we don't have photographs or good pictures of. It lets me use my imagination and you just to get to create worlds as you think about uh, the ancient Rome and ancient Greece and things like that. Um, but for me, the older, the better. Uh, so my favorite museum in Chicago, um, out of all the areas that have historical artifacts, like the Field Museum and such, is the Oriental Institute. It's a little, not very well-known museum, because most of you have probably never heard of it. Has anybody here actually been? One, yes, we'll talk later. Um, the Oriental Institute is at the University of Chicago, and it's a little museum of ancient Near Eastern history. And now when I say ancient Near Eastern history, I'm talking about like the oldest of the old. This is Mesopotamia, um, Babylon, Persia, Israel, the Chaldeans, the stuff that sets the stage and the backdrop in and around uh, what we read about in the Old Testament. So this is like way at the beginning of civilization coming up, and they've got rooms to all of the great nations that we read about in the Bible. There's a Persia room, the Israel room. Um, I really like the Babylon room um, because it sets like it gives me pictures to think about when I read the Bible. So like, say for Daniel, for example, uh, there's King Nebuchadnezzar in his throne room at the museum. They have these 30, 40-foot statues or four-legged creatures with wings and, and his head on them that stood on each side of his throne. And then the walls of his throne room had 30 or 40-foot um, soldiers carved into the wall, each of them holding their sword. And then as you walk down the hallway to get into this room, um, there's just reliefs into the stone carved of, of his armies going to battle and conquering all the other nations. And you think about this young man, Daniel, um, who stood up in that kingdom um, and would have gone, you know, walked through these halls with uh, these very um, sculptures and things in them. And he, Daniel stood there in, in the midst of these, uh, kind of puts a little bit of perspective and think, man, this is what he went through. And it, gives you a little picture of what you can imagine that these people in the Bible um, went through. But I'll tell you my favorite thing, number one favorite thing at this museum, because I'm a history nerd, I love Taylor's Prism. We're known as Sennacherib's Prism. It's like this little clay thing about this big, um, and on it are etched the conquests and the, the records of a guy named Sennacherib's 
conquests as the king. And Sennacherib was the king of Assyria. He was probably the most powerful king of Assyria and one of the most powerful monarchs that lived in all of the ancient Near East. And he went all around and he conquered and went to battle and destroyed all of these cities and overtook so many nations. And he, he conquered a lot of land all the way down um, to doing battle with the Egyptians from the, the north up above Israel to the south. And it has records of him going to, to Ekron and Chaldea and all these places where he could, uh, he conquered these kings and nations. And what is cool, though, is that we have the same record in the Bible as we do on this historical artifact, this, this piece of stone that's thousands of years old. Uh, we have records of the same things, and it kind of proves that what, what we have here in the Bible is accurate to history. Um, they're not just myths and stories that are, are nice to tell our kids, but they're real things that really happened. And when you get to see the little artifacts that were there at the time of these stories, for me, that's really cool. Uh, maybe you think that's weird and lame, but that's okay. Uh, I love it. But what, what's cool is that the Bible records in 2 Kings that Sennacherib was on his conquest, and he, he destroyed the walled cities and the little villages of Israel, and he took those over, and then he... He conquered everything, and then he got to the city of Jerusalem, and he laid siege to it. He surrounded the whole city. And then in the city, he says that King Hezekiah is there. And, um, and then the Bible records that his general, Sennacherib's general, goes into the city and as a messenger to, uh, to talk to King Hezekiah. And he tells him, look, I'm going to kill you guys. We've done it to everybody else. Just be real here. Uh, just start paying us, and he gives them some terms. You're going to pay us all this money. Uh, you're going to worship our king. All these things. This is this is what you're going to do, and for that, and repayment for that, we're just not going to kill everybody else here. Does that sound cool? So Hezekiah obviously is pretty scared, and the prophet Isaiah comes, and in the book of Isaiah, it has a similar record, and Isaiah encourages him not to do it. And on his way out, the general tells all the people, like, "Hey, your king is going to let you guys die because uh, he's too proud to submit to me. Look what I've done." I've killed everybody else. Um, and so Hezekiah and Isaiah pray. And then the Bible says that that night, the angel of the Lord came into the camps of the Assyrians and he slew scores of men. He killed hundreds of thousands and just decimated the army of Assyria. At that time, the most powerful army in the world was wiped out in a night. And that the God did for his people in Israel. Now, Sennacherib's records of that are a little bit different, understandably. Um, he claims that he had Hezekiah in his city, caged up like a bird, and he talks about laying siege to it. And, and all the other nations he went to, he records that he went in and he, he captured the king and he killed everybody and they went into the city. But it's funny that he leaves that part out in the record of coming up against Israel. Uh, he leaves out ever actually going into the city. He goes from laying siege to taking the spoils of war, um, all the things that he took from them, but doesn't really ever claim to, to go into Israel and beat them. A funny little omission he may have made there. Um, but then the Bible and his prison both record that they left there, and, and then after they got back to their capital city of Nineveh, um, the two sons of Sennacherib killed him, um, probably out of shame for losing that. But other records from other nations in history say that the Assyrians were headed westward, and then somehow for no real good explanation. Their conquest kind of stopped just east of Israel, and at that, after that, their military power kind of 
sank after that. There's really no reason other than there's one record that claims uh, that some mice came in overnight and chewed all the bowstrings and the, the shield straps of, of all the Assyrian armies is, is another nation's account for why this happened. Um, but we know in the Bible it tells us that God came and he fought on behalf of his people. He fought for Israel uh, when they called to him against a, a certain uh, defeat in battle. And now I tell you this because we're not actually in 2 Kings today. So you're like, oh man, he hasn't even gotten to his text yet. We're going to be in Psalm. We're going to read Psalm 46. But I tell you this because that's, that's the story, the background to the psalm that we're going to read today. So a lot of times the psalms can seem like flowery words and just something, some poetic guy uh, who likes to walk in flower fields, was writing just because he likes words, but they really don't mean anything, right? Well, but this one in particular was written by a guy who probably went to bed one night thinking, this is the last night I'm going to sleep because tomorrow when I wake up, this army is going to come into my city and they're going to kill me and my family and everything I know. And so for him, this guy had some real problems. He was a real guy with real problems in real life. This guy had a real God who came. And when God came and was present for them, he wrote this psalm in response to God's miraculous victory. So, so let me read Psalm 46 for you. He writes, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, and though its waters roar and foam, and though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river, or there's a, a river whose streams make glad the city of God, and the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, and she shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage and the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I love this psalm. And probably one of the most well-known verses, the be still and know that I'm God, is, is here in this psalm. And that's the context of which it comes from. And I, and I gave you that because a lot of times the psalms seem like they're better fit for coffee mugs and wall calendars. But this psalm, all the Psalms, but I want to give you this one in particular, is very well fit uh, for that guy's life, and it's very well fit for my life and for your life. So we take it off the calendars and put it in our hearts. And as I read this, the theme seems to be God's presence. He's a very present help in time of need. He inhabits with us. He's there. He's among us. You can read that the presence of God is very, uh, very present in this passage. And it's broken up into three sections, and there's three very simple things that we can read that we get from God by him being present with us. So let's read. The first one is God is our protection. We read this. He said, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. He's there for us when we're in trouble. 
And we know God is always present. He's omnipresent. For those of you who need a big word, omnipresent is your word this morning. That means he's always there. He's always present here with us. But he said he's a very present help in time of trouble. And that reinforces that God is especially there and he cares particularly for us when we're in trouble or when we're in need. And when we're at our most vulnerable, God cares and he's especially present there for us. And he says he's our refuge and he's our strength. And when I think of refuge as a place we can run to in trouble, and our strength is what we get when we're weak, and in my mind, I see pictures of fortresses and castles. But when you think about it, we don't really have fortresses and castles. Uh, we live in Indiana, let's be honest. Um, but, but think about this. Uh, the refuge we can take in God is like Today that we hear about the Syrian refugees who are fleeing from danger in their country, their lives are in danger. So they're running away and they get to the water and they, they put together these makeshift rafts and little boats and they get on them and get into the water to try to traverse this choppy water across the sea to get to, to Greece or somewhere else. And we're reading about this and hearing about it in the news. And so for these refugees, they're fleeing for refuge, but the refuge isn't in a boat. Their refuge is in the hope that that boat can lead them to on the other side of the water. Because, like, they're going into water. And it's neat that he says that uh, in verse 3. It says, though its waters roar and foam. And these Syrians are going into roaring and foaming waters on these little boats. Um, but for them, the refuge that they have is in the hope on the other side. And let me read to you guys. Uh, Hebrews 6, verse 18 says, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. And so in the same way as the boat didn't really save them from the dangers around them, um, it, it just took them from one danger and into another one, they had the hope. But for us, we don't, aren't saved from necessarily the dangers around us because our lives still have things in them. But what we have as a refuge is the hope of what's on the other side, and that's God being present for us can give us uh, a hope against anything. And the author here in Psalms gives us some of the things that we might be protected against. Um, and he really goes, he shoots for the stars, and he says, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, um, and though its waters roar and foam, and the, though the earth gives way, and though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. So he's painting for us a picture here of just what dangers might come against us. I think he picks the most powerful things he could, some forces in nature. You guys don't really seem moved by that. So here's what we're going to do. I understand. I'm going to knock Indiana again. Our, our lake doesn't roar and it doesn't foam. And we don't have earthquakes. We sure as heck don't have any mountains around here. So here's what we're going to do. Everybody leave. Go get your kids. Pack up your kids. Uh, get your bags. We're going to take a flight. We're going to the West Coast. We're going to go to California. We're going to go to what, San Francisco. There's the San Andreas Fault there. Uh, it was a really cheesy movie done about this recently. But we're going to sit and we're going to wait at this fault until we get an earthquake. Because I really think we need to feel an earthquake to understand what he's saying here. So we're going to go and we're going to sit there and we're going to wait until we just get one of those earth-giving way kind of earthquakes. Everything's trembling and shaking, uh, and I want you to be scared. And once you're just frightened enough, we're going to get on an airplane, we're going to head north a little more to the Seattle-Tacoma airport. We're going to get off there, we're going to head just a little east 
of Seattle to Mount Rainier, all right, because I want you guys to understand mountains. Now, I thought I understood mountains, because when I was in high school, I, I went to Atlanta, and we drove down, and we went through Tennessee, and there's like, there's these mountains. Well, I thought they were mountains. They're really just hills, because uh, when I was in Seattle uh, with my family once, we were driving out to go see Mount Rainier, and we're on the highway, and the, the ocean's this way, and the mountain is this way, and my brother... Uh, who lived there is telling us, hey, it's, it's just up ahead. It's just up ahead. And we're looking at like, in like the distance, we see the shadows of like these hills. And we're like, I mean, that one's a little taller than the other ones. Maybe it's, maybe it's that one there. And it's a cloudy day. And so, but, but we're looking at these, these little dark hills off in the distance. And as we're looking, the, the clouds start to shift just ever so slightly. And here's, here's our horizon. Here's what we're looking at. And then up here, we start seeing like, like this snow cap. And we're like, oh, oh, that's Mount Rainier. I've seen hills, and I thought those were mountains, but in reality, I'm looking at not the tallest, but the biggest mountain in North America, and we're like, oh, my gosh, that is a mountain. And it changed my perspective on what a mountain is. And so once we get there, I hope you feel that shock and awe. It says the mountains are going to be removed, so... We're going to have to get both services to come with us, and we're going to surround the mountain. We're picking it up. And we're going to take a little walk north uh, up to Alaska. We've got to cut through Canada, so bring your passports. And we're going to find those guys who are on that show, uh, The Deadliest Catch. You've seen that. They go out in these boats, and you wonder why crab is so expensive. And they, they fish for, like, crab in these ridiculous storms. And their boats are being tossed back and forth, and the waves are coming over, and these guys are getting thrown across their boats, and at any moment you think their ship is just going to capsize, and everybody will be lost, but they, they don't usually. And, but these, these waters are just roaring and foaming and crashing over the boats, and we got to get on the boat with our mountain, because it says it's gonna, we're going to cast it into the heart of the sea. And so once we've got our mountain, and once the, roar, the roaring waters are coming over our boat, we're going to cast this mountain into the sea, and I want, at the end of this trip, you guys to understand just how powerful these forces are. Or you can nod right now and you can save your family a lot of airfare. All right, thanks, guys. But if you understand how powerful the forces that could come against you are, then I want you to also understand that you have a very present God, the God whose who breath carried these things into existence. And he says, I'm your refuge and I'm your strength. I spoke and these things just happened. And I'm here, I'm present for you. So no matter what comes, God's here, and he's your protection. And then we read in the next section, the next thing, uh, God's presence as our protection, and now God's presence as our peace. It says, there is a river whose streams make glad, or no, I'm sorry, the second one is God is our provision. It says, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. So we've got streams running through the city of God, Jerusalem. And if you think about it, in ancient times, the number one thing that any city needed to have was water. All the civilizations were built on a sea or a river or something because that's how they stayed hydrated. That's how they watered their plants to grow their food and clean and cook. Water was it. That was the number one thing that you needed. Um, today we still need water, but for them it was especially important. And so these streams that ran through the city were what gave life to the people. It's what provided for the people. It's how they lived. And so it says they make glad the city of God and give them provision. Uh, but this little section, it's neat because it contrasts the first section. It says God is in the midst of her, living in the city, habitating there. It says 
and she shall not be moved. Which is interesting because the last section at the beginning said that the mountains were going to be moved. But when God is with us, it says we will not be moved. And in the first section, the waters were roaring and they were foaming. But now with God in the presence, the waters are streams. They're giving life. The God whose throne, from whose throne flow the streams of the water of life is here with us. He's present and he's here providing for us, providing not only physical things, but providing order in our disorder, providing unity in our chaos. The things in life, when they get hairy, God's there providing us peace and rest. And so the third part is God's presence as our peace. If you read, it says, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And he says, come, behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. Now we're getting to the war stuff. You're thinking like, man, this guy had just seen God in an act of war. Why is he talking about mountains? But now we're to the war. So if that makes you happy. He says, he's brought desolations on the earth. He makes the wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bows and shatters the spear. And he burns the chariots with fire. This is the stuff we were wanting from God, right? He's got power and might. And we see him in his military conquests. And he does that. But, it, but this psalmist decided to speak more to the presence of God. But in the presence of God, these wars that happen, they cease. If you think about it, since civilization started, we really haven't seen much time in our world without somebody warring with somebody else. There's always wars going on around us. But it says when God is present, God comes and he makes the wars to cease to the end of the earth. The bows and the weapons, the the spears, they're broken, they're shattered. The things that people fight against each other and the people have, God brings those to an end. And the weapons that our enemy might come at us with, the devil comes to us, with our flesh comes to us with, God shatters those and he breaks those for us when he's present with us. And I think this section is particularly important, applicable for us, and that we live in a world that's a little bit crazy. Am I right? If you're on Facebook, all you see is people posting about all of the things that are going on. Let's see, what do we got going on? Uh, we've got Russia. I don't know what they're going to do. We've got ISIS is in the Middle East. Iran has nukes or can. Uh, we've got either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. And a lot of people are like, well, I don't know who to pick. I don't like her. I don't like him. What do we do? They're trying to take our guns. People are shooting in schools. Our debt is through the roof. Is our country going to make it? We've got issues with bathrooms. We've got issues with marriage. We've got issues everywhere. Uh, And it seems like the response for us is worry and let's post another article on Facebook. And if you look at all the things that are happening around our world, it's really not hard to just get afraid and think, what's it going to look like? Well, I've got kids. What's their life going to look like? All of these things are happening in our world globally, nationally, and locally. Things are tumultuous. Things are scary. Things are uh, raging. And it could lead us to be afraid. It could lead us to fear, to think, well, how could, is God here? God's not in this. God must have left. He's gone. We don't have him anymore. But we know that the beginning of this psalm, 
promises us that in our trouble, he's very present. It's in our day and age where it's easy to lose heart and think everything is going to hell in a handbasket. We can understand that God is even more present for us, for his people. You know, God has always been there. In the Old Testament, when the Israelites were wandering around, God came and lived in the tabernacle with them. He's always preferred to be with his people. And then when the nation of Israel was established, he came and he lived in the temple and met with the people. He's always wanted to be with his people. And then eventually he came down and lived on earth like real skin and bone flesh as Jesus because he wanted to be with his people. And after Jesus left, he promised the Spirit would come. And for us, his people, as individuals and as a church, he is here among us. He's present because he has always wanted to be present among his people. Okay, now you're thinking, yeah, that's great. That's good for Sunday. That's good today, and that sounds encouraging. But what about tomorrow? Good, tomorrow's a holiday, so we're going to give it a pass. What about Tuesday? What do I do then? Because on Tuesday and next week, there's, there's no band to sing songs for us. There's nobody to get us to clap. There's nobody to pray over us and to read prayers for us. There's nobody to give a message and try to encourage us. You've got to go home, and on Sunday I can give you a psalm and you can hear it, but what about when you go back to your life, when you go back into the world and you don't have all of this here to make you feel good and you don't have somebody reminding you of God being present? Well, this psalm, the psalms are easy on Sunday, but this is your, this is your Monday through Saturday psalm. You could take this one with you because the next part gives the application that we can take. It says, God speaking here in verse 10, the the author changes voices from him speaking about what God does to God speaking. Verse 10, it says, be still and know that I am God. And so this is that psalm. You could take, take this verse with you. Put it in your pocket and take it with you for the week. Because when you go from here, you're going to face your storms and your mountains trembling around you. Your earth might give way. The things you base your life on, they could shake. And you need his protection. So maybe you've got to go back this week to that job where your boss is just a jerk. And when the pressure is always on, or you've got to go back into that relationship that's strained in the marriage that's tense and it's tearing apart, or your kids that you just can't seem to get along with or they've left and gone wayward, or, or you've got to go back and remember that something in your body is broken, whether you've got a pain or a disease or something, or just the life that you have that's disordered, you've got to go back to that. Look, hearing this sermon, when you check your bank account tomorrow, there's not going to be more money in there, and the bills are not going to go away. The things that happen in your life that cause pain, that cause struggle, the things that tremble in your life, that shake you, the circumstances in our world on the news that we hear about, they don't go away because we read a psalm. And God doesn't promise that he's going to do away with everything, but what he does promise here is he's going to be here with us. And the temptation, though, is to, is to try to hold it all together, to try to take care of it ourselves. But God says, no, 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 no. Just be still. Be still. He fought for Israel. He'll fight for us. He protected Israel 
He'll protect us. And our best efforts are like going to our earthquakes with a Band-Aid and trying to fix it. Or going up to that mountain with a shovel and thinking we could pick this up. Or going into that storm with an umbrella, like that's going to do something for us. But God says, no, 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 stop. Be still. Let God do what God does. God protects us. God brings order to our disorder. And God brings peace to the wars around us. And so what I want is, is to understand to be still. And maybe that sounds easy. or Maybe that's, that's it's not deep enough for me, you know. But if you really actually tried to just be still, it's probably a lot harder than you think if you've never done it to really let go of what you're trying to do to hold things together and let God come in and do his work to know he is God because he promises here he's going to be exalted in the nations. God brings through what he says he's going to do. And so the challenge is and the hope is to be still in our lives when things are shaking and giving way and trembling and a little bit scary, we could be still and know who God is. But let me read something a little more direct from uh, Philippians. Let Paul speak to you here as you look into this. In Philippians 4, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Language sounds familiar from Psalms. He's at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. So the Lord is at hand. So let your requests be known to God. He's, he's here with us. He's close. He hears you. And so you remind that we always need him. But the, the challenge is to be still and to know that he is God. We always need him. He says he's a very present help in time of need. 